First, you're going to have seller exhaustion. Then you are going to have FOMO buying. And then third, you are going to have the start of the positive reinforcing feedback loop, where what happens is when you actually start to get that, it creates these violent moves. And those violent moves actually create on-chain activity. And on-chain activity creates things like ETH burn, creates things like further interest, and actually results in further price appreciation. All right, everyone. Uh, welcome back to another episode of Empire. We got uh, Mike Ippolito from Blockworks 7 and Frisanti. And then we are lucky to be joined by Hal Press from Northrock. Um, Northrock Digital, Sushi, Omakase Extraordinaire. <laughs> Hal, welcome to the show, man. <laughs> Thank, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. You ready to talk Omakase? Sure. If you All want right. to talk sushi for the next hour and a half, let's do it. All right, let's do it. I think uh, I think folks would be a little happier if we talked about uh, this market pumping. So I, I want to talk about a bunch of stuff with you, like real yields framework, like your thesis around. I know you've got this like ETH BTC trade. Want to get your insights into like how you think about L2s as well. A bunch of stuff we can talk about, but I think it'd be a good place to start by just talking about this recent market pump. Right, we went into the year. ETH was sitting around eleven or twelve hundred. Today, we're sitting around sixteen hundred. I'd love to just get like your high level framework for how you're thinking about the market today. Sure, um, and I was quite vocal about this actually as early as November. I put out a thread on Twitter, like after the whole FTX debacle, because I was I was pretty bullish during the FTX kind of episode uh, during the digestion period. And I put out a thread kind of explaining my logic. And honestly, I'm kind of annoyed given how much it's turned out to be true that I didn't capitalize on it even more than I have. But um, just to go back to that, basically the thought process then was that by the end of the year, we were going to have reached what I'd refer to as extreme and complete seller exhaustion. Um, and there was a large confluence of things that I felt like all coincided with that year-end date. Um, but basically, after X FTX blew up, that was, in my opinion, kind of like the final shoe that dropped. And everything that could have possibly gone wrong during 2022 did go wrong. And so if you were going to sell your crypto exposure, you basically had every single excuse to do so. And everyone that was going to sell sold. And then on top of that, you had tax loss selling, you had fund redemptions, and you had traditional fund window dressing, all three coinciding with year end. So those are three technical forces on top of like mass capitulation. Like, I mean, you saw every magazine headline, every like tech prognosticator all saying crypto's dead, sell your crypto, market's over, like this was a fad. And so combine all of that with the technical forces, basically everyone that was possibly going to sell crypto um, sold. And because of that, you had pushed prices to a level where there was clearly real sort of strong-handed demand because otherwise, like who was buying all of that supply, right? For every seller, there must be a buyer. Uh, so clearly what that was indicating was that at those levels, like at sub $1,200 ETH, at sub $17,000 Bitcoin, like there's real demand from crypto natives that just will DCA continuously at those prices. 
into perpetuity. And especially after like the merge, when there's no structural supply of ETH, um, and Bitcoin emissions at that point were quite low in dollar-denominated values, and alts had mainly vested everything. Like there wasn't a lot of actual structural supply left either. Um, and so the flow dynamic was perfectly primed for a year-end inflection. Like at these 31st, there was simply no sellers left. Um, and, and, and also, so that was like part one of the thesis. And then part two of the thesis was, first of all, FTX doesn't really change anything. Right? Like, okay, so we're down an exchange. That's not great, but like crypto is still crypto. Everything that, that it used to stand on still stands. Um, and actually, in a lot of ways, it probably accelerates the sort of regulation that that whole episode shows that we need, right? And so there's potential for that actually to turn out to be a positive. Um, and then on top of that, we've been seeing a macro inflection, uh, just a broader macro inflection. And now the crypto market wasn't pricing that in because it was dealing with all these idiosyncratic issues. But inflation has clearly topped. The Fed is about to reach terminal rates. Um, recession is proving to be probably more mild than people thought. Equity markets are 15% off the lows. Bond yields are 50 bips off the highs. Like the broad macro is also inflecting. So all of those things created this confluence of events for year end to lead to the start of a sort of new uptrend. And then the second part of the thesis was, as soon as you had that start, it was very easy to see continuation because basically every pocket of discretionary crypto exposure had been zeroed. And if there's one thing that crypto is extremely good at, it's creating FOMO. And so if you start to move off the lows with everybody, like every pocket of exposure except super diamond hand crypto natives underexposed, then you're very likely to have some FOMO buying after the initial move. And so we saw that too. And then the third part of the thesis, which actually also held, was that first you're going to have seller exhaustion, then you are going to have FOMO buying, and then third, you are going to have the start of the positive reinforcing feedback loop where what happens is when you actually start to get that, it creates these violent moves, and those violent moves actually create on-chain activity. And on-chain activity creates things like ETH burn, creates things like further interest, and actually results in further price appreciation. And what you get is this, this feedback loop where price appreciation begets activity, and activity begets price appreciation. And you start to create this, this feedback loop. And that, that, that was actually the third part of the thesis, all which I laid out in November. Um, and basically all three of those, all three of those distinct events have really happened. You had the seller exhaustion, then the FOMO buying, and now the activity, the self-fulfilling feedback mm -hmm. loop. And so where we go from here um, is harder, obviously, to, to, to predict. But that is my sort of understanding as to like how we've gotten here. Hmm. So, all right. So you nailed that call, right? You've got FOMO, FOMO buying, uh, uh, yeah, exhaustion and sell and selling, and then you've got these uh, this like nice positive feedback loop that's going on on chain. And the, the the thesis was right that you put out in November right. or December, and the market on up thirty. And I will say, as I said before, like just because I got the thesis right doesn't mean that we capitalized on it as well as we should have. Like I am. You I mean, undersized. We should, we should you know, maybe you undersized yeah, yeah. it, but like still, you got the thesis but, right. But now, anyway, now the, the thesis up was right. 40, 30, 40 percent in the main ones. Things like Aptos are up like four hundred percent. But ETH, so like, I'll focus in on ETH because I know you spend a lot of time in ETH. Like ETH right now is pushing up against that like sixteen fifty, seventeen hundred, like that, that that strong wall that you that you see oftentimes. What like where mm -hmm. do you think the market goes from here? I know that's the much harder question, but 
yeah. How are you handling so ETH, ETH is, and this is actually one of the things that we got wrong. Um, we thought that ETH was going to lead the early part of the, the yearly rally, and that wasn't true. Um, I, th- I sort of thought that, um, well, at least empirically, that didn't turn out to be the case. I thought that ETH would lead uh, because I thought that the, the technical selling into year-end was probably greater in ETH than Bitcoin uh, because it was probably led by more institutional selling, uh, which for whatever reason may not have been the case. But I thought that ETH was going to rebound more strongly also because tech, typically in, in, in historical regimes, ETH is the higher beta asset. And so when the market rallies, ETH BTC tends to go up. ETH BTC tends to trade with some beta. It goes up and market goes up, goes down and market goes down. But um, that didn't happen. Uh, and the reason it didn't happen, in my opinion, was because of Shanghai withdrawals. Uh, well, two reasons. I think ETH BTC was, was crowded and, and second, Shanghai withdrawals. So personally, I, I, w- I had expected ETH to sort of underperform into Shanghai, but Shanghai is not till April. And I thought that the market would start to price that in like two months out in February. I didn't think it would start as early as January. So it happened a little faster than I um, anticipated. Um, and so I think just to get to your question, ETH has been a laggard. I think ETH has been kind of used as like the funding leg for a lot of these other higher beta um, shorts, uh, higher beta alt longs. And also, I think more of the fresh buying has been in Bitcoin. Um, and also, like I think ETH BTC was a bit crowded coming into the year. So all three of those have contributed to sort of ETH underperforming Bitcoin and definitely underperforming alts. Um, however, I think we've finally gotten to some levels now where ETH BTC is pretty washed out. Um, and on top of that, like the Shanghai sort of front run, I think is largely priced in. And, and also I think Shanghai is not going to be that negative. Like this is another thing that we can talk about, but I think the market is overly anxious about it. I don't think there's going to be a lot of supply. And like I said, we can get into the specifics of that. And at the same time, you do have structural demand in ETH now. So you have $5 million of ETH buy pressure daily. Um, and so what that means is just that like every day, you know, people can keep rotating out of ETH, but that's just going to be absorbed. And at a certain point, they're going to like, they're going to run out of willing sellers. And after Shanghai, when everyone tries to rotate back into ETH, I think you're going to see ETH start to outperform again. Um, so how it trades between now and sort of April is is tricky. I think it probably chops around and doesn't do a whole lot in terms of like ETH BTC and just generally moves with risk in the market. But I do think um, after Shanghai, it can like ETH BTC can can restart its uptrend that it was on before. Hal, when you say that ETH BTC was a crowded trade, uh, first of all, can you explain why that ratio is important? ETH BTC, like why do so many people track sure. that? But then also, are when you say ETH BTC was crowded, are you is there a very specific trade that people were putting on? And if so, like how does that yeah. trade kind of unwind? Mean, we had the trade on; it was painful. Um, yeah, <laughs> the trade the trade is long ETH short Bitcoin. I mean, oh. that's a structural position. I had I had decreased it because I was already starting to worry about Shanghai, but I hadn't taken it off to start the year. Um, and I think a lot of funds had that position on, right? And so mm. it, it, you can, you can the, the position can be manifested in a few different ways. Like you can either, as a fund, if you like don't have shorts, you can just have more of your exposure in ETH than Bitcoin, or you can literally have the actual trade on, which is what we had, which is right. long ETH, short Bitcoin, like on perps. Um, and so that is the, the trade that I'm referring to. 
And I think that had become a sort of consensus position because of a lot of the structural factors, which I've talked about at Azam. Um, and I think that, that, that unwound to start this year. Mm. And, and why do, why do you, just for, for folks who might not be familiar, like EPTC, that ratio gets talked about quite a bit, right? And people track it. You see these charts on Twitter. Like, why is that an important ratio to pay attention to? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, they are the two major assets in the space, right? There's like really no other, there's no other assets that come anywhere close in terms of liquidity, in terms of staying power, and in terms of importance um, to the to the space. And so they are kind of in a category of their own. And then the relative ratio of them, it just reflects a lot of sort of the dynamics of the space. Typically, it's been important because um, Bitcoin has kind of been the reserve asset of the space and ETH has been the higher beta alt. And so it's, it's used sort of as a reflection for um, risk appetite and risk beta. But also, it's just important to try to, like a lot of people think one one's better than the other. And so there's a, this like large sort of like heated debate between the two sides about it. And that's kind of a reflection of, of how the market is perceiving it. Um, and yeah, historically, it's just been it's just been a, a very notable ratio because those two have always been the largest um, tokens in the space for a long time. Let's talk a little bit about Shanghai. I mean, can you, um, I'm sure most listeners will already be familiar with what Shanghai, but can you just give a, like an overview of what Shanghai is and then maybe we can get into sure. sort of like the, the ramifications price-wise? Yeah, sure. Um, so the Beacon chain was enabled a couple of years ago and that meant that there was a proof of stake chain. This was still when proof of work was live, um, but you could then stake your ETH on the proof of stake chain and receive um, staking rewards through the form that originally they were just um, ETH issuance. And since the merge, they also get priority fees and MEV, which used to go to miners, but now go to stakers. And so you could deposit ETH to the beacon chain and start becoming a validator and receiving these rewards. However, you could not withdraw that ETH and you still cannot withdraw that ETH. So once it was a one-way door, and it still is a one-way door. You can deposit ETH, you cannot withdraw ETH. Um, Shanghai is just the name of the fork that is going to finally, two years later, enable withdrawals. And that just means that anybody that staked their ETH is now going to be able to withdraw that ETH from the beacon chain if they would like to. And so there's a lot of anxiety in the market because they look and they see, okay, 16 million ETH is staked which is like $20 billion um, more, a bit more than that. And they think, okay, that is locked ETH that can't sell. And then once Shanghai is enabled, that's all going to be able to come out. And then a lot of those people probably want to sell, and that's going to be a ton of supply on the market. Now, the reason that I don't think that that's, that, that sort of knee-jerk reaction is necessarily the right one is a variety of, of, of things. Well, first of all, Actually, over 60%, it's about 62%, I, I refreshed my calculations the other day, of that ETH is actually already liquid. So if you stake through Lido, for example, or Coinbase, you can either liquid stake, they have a liquid staking derivative or an exchange stake derivative. Um, and if you do either of those, right, they, they give you a representative token that is liquid today. 
and you can trade. And these have traded very close to PEG for a long time. And so anybody that wants to exit their liquid ETH position can already have done so for 62% of that ETH. So 62% is already liquid and the rewards on that 62% is also already liquid. So that 62% you can kind of just forget about. When Shanghai happens, there's no liquidity change for that 62%. Now, the other 32% is what we care about. And that is made up of home stakers. So that's like, if I have my own validator, which I have set up by the way, um, and you just set it up in your house and you are just validating traditionally through the chain instead of paying somebody 10% of your rewards to validate for you, then that ETH is not liquid because you do not have someone giving you a liquid staking derivative token to represent your ETH in the meantime. So you actually have been locked. However, the important thing is to look at the profile of those people. Really, those are the most diehard ETH maxi, ETH loyalist people that exist you know, in, in, in the world, right? Those are the people that were that were liquid staking two years ago, or not, sorry, not liquid staking, that were home staking two years ago when staking wasn't even being talked about very much. Um, these are not the kind of folks that want to sell their ETH. They want more ETH. Like, they're not going to just be like, oh, I finally, after two years, can redeem this ETH experiment and sell it and move on, right? Like, that, that's not who they are. They wouldn't, have, they wouldn't have been home staking two years ago if that was. Now, some of these people might have had changing life events or whatever and want the money. And sure, some of them are going to sell, but I think it's going to be a very low um, percentage of that 38%. And so, like, I have my own model, which at some point I'll share. Um, and... I run the numbers and I just don't see a very material amount of notional ETH selling. And I think, you know, it's going to be spread over quite some time. So what's going to happen is the rewards on those home stakers are going to be distributed quite quickly over the first, I think about four days. And that will lead to a small burst of like moderate selling, but really honestly, that's not even that much. Like we're talking in the order of like a couple hundred million dollars of ETH selling, which like, you know, that sort of flow happens on a daily basis. That's not like anything mm -hmm. out of the ordinary. Um, like that's, that flow is certainly not worth 10% of ETH BTC, which is what we've already seen the ratio move. Um, and especially, especially in like a market where it would normally have been up. And then followed by probably another couple months of a similar order of magnitude selling. And then it's done, right? And then that's it. Like there is no more ETH selling ever. Like the miners have sold, the withdrawals have sold, that, that's the end. That's the line of the podcast. There's no more ETH selling ever. <laughs> uh, Two months after Shanghai, no more technical selling of ETH into, yeah. into eternity. So I think that's a good counter argument uh, to how to the, you know, there's going to be a big dump from Shanghai. What will the, will there be any other like structural or like rotations into maybe like who will the, like what platforms will come out winning this? Like, will Rocket Pool do, re do really well from this? Will Lido like do better or worse because of this? Like yeah. Coinbase better or worse? I'm curious to hear like who's going to be the, the beneficiaries of this rotation. So it's a good question. I don't want to like, sh I don't want to show all my cards on this, obviously, because like, you know, we obviously have positions. And, Does this mean you're either uh, long uh, Rocket Pool or long Lido? Is that uh, <laughs> what I'm hearing here? <laughs> we, 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 we obviously have positions and like, this is a, this is like a very important dynamic, right? There will be winners and losers. Um, and, you know, there, there's positioning to be done in regards to that. However, with that said, I would say probably, in my opinion, the most obvious winner, the ETH Maxis are going to like this. 
um, is Rocket Pool. You're about to fire I up think. David Hoffman. Mm. Um, I, I think it's Rocket Pool because I just think it's the most direct beneficiary of staking participation going up because you actually need to buy RPL to stake on Rocket Pool. And then on top of that, um, I don't think it's that crowded of like a fund or like fast money long. So there's probably not that much sell the news that it comes. And then third, a lot of the, well, some of the home stakers are going to migrate to liquid staking. And if those folks are going to migrate to one of the liquid staking platforms, it's very likely going to be Rocket Pool because those folks are decentralization maxis and Rocket Pool is like the most decentralized of the liquid staking options. And so I think mm-hmm. like, for those three reasons, it probably stands to gain the most from actual Shanghai um, implementation. Hey everyone, quick break from Empire to tell you about another Blockworks channel that I know you're gonna love. I've been in crypto full-time for five years and have always struggled with one thing, which is keeping up with the next big trend. As soon as I wrap my head around MEV, we're on to app chains. As soon as I wrap my head around app chains, we're on to liquid staking derivatives. I'm sure you've been there. Blockworks Research has solved that problem for me. Our team puts research, data, governance, proposal updates, models, and more into one really easy to use platform so I can always stay ahead of the curve. If I don't understand something, for example, I just pull up the platform, I can search for an L1, I can search for a protocol, pull up the platform at blockworksresearch.com, I search the term, there's always an amazing amount of insight in a really consumable way. Uh, right now, you can subscribe to the platform. It's 2500 bucks a year or 900 bucks a quarter. Hopefully, you can uh, make more than $208 a month by using the platform. If you can't, you're probably in the wrong business. But if you're not ready to subscribe to the platform today, you can subscribe to the research team's free newsletter. Uh, you can follow their Twitter handles today. Links in the show notes. Trust me, once you do that, you're going to want to subscribe to the platform. If you are ready to, uh, to subscribe right now, I got you guys with a little hookup. Empire listeners get a 10% discount for the first 50 people who use the code Empire10. Got your back. Check out the links in the, sh- in the description to find out more. Now, let's get back to the show. Hmm. There are what other implications, think- but, but that's the most obvious one. Yeah. What, what do you think about, you know, when you look at the liquid staking derivative providers like the like Lido, Rocket Pool, there's, there's CB ETH on there as well. I mean, let's just talk about Lido and Rocket Pool. So what do you think about, there's like two ways to think about that as like a trade, right? Which is like, don't overthink it, left side of the bell curve, like liquid staking, you know, Shanghai after like liquid staking derivatives go up, like that's a good momentum trade. But then there's like a longer term kind of fundamental uh, valuation that you could do. And this is one of those like, one of our analysts was uh, talking about this the other day, which is like, even if you take really generous assumptions for something like Lido, like Lido is trading at a $2 billion fully diluted valuation. Even if you assume they get like, you know, some ridiculous like 80% market share or something like that, they're still incredibly richly valued basically. So I guess my, my question, yeah, on like a short, shorter term narrative basis, but then also like, if you could talk about them on like a, a valuation type framework as well. So, okay, I said a few things. So first of all, there is a real fundamental benefit here, right? So what happens is, and I've talked about this at Nasm, like I've written a uh, 30-page thesis back when we did the merge about my liquid sticky derivative thesis and why withdrawals matter. Uh, And it was just purely focused on fundamentals. The reason that, okay, so the the fundamental sort of tailwind, like why is this positive? Uh, 
is really there's two prongs to it. If you think about these protocols, they have revenues and expenses. Their revenue comes from the 10% reward that they charge, the 10% fee that they charge on staking rewards on their products. And so that's really a factor of um, a few variables. But one of those variables is how much ETH they have staked. And mm -hmm. one of the variables that influences that is staking participation rate. So on the revenue side of the calculation, if there are more people that are going to stake ETH, and I think historic, you know, people have looked at ETH and been like, okay, it's 15% staking participation rate. Like every other proof of stake chain is 60 plus. So there's a lot of reasons that ETH is lower than the others and probably doesn't get to that level, but there's a lot of room for growth above 15. And one of the things holding it back is the fact that you can't withdraw. And so after withdrawals are enabled, there's a view, I think the correct view, that staking participation rate is gonna go up dramatically. So on the revenue side of the equation, that just leads to more stake ETH for everybody. Every player in the field just gets their product to get greater um, traction. So what does that mean for like Lido, for example? Revenue up. Um, that's the that's the revenue side of the equation, and that's like forget market share. Like it's just the the it's a it's a rising tide for all of the parties in the entire space, right? Because just more stake ETH. Now. The expense side of the equation, really the largest expense of these um, protocols is the emissions that they pay to maintain the peg on their staked ETH derivative versus ETH. So for example, Lido has to pay out Lido tokens to the curve pool such that people will LP in the curve pool and provide liquidity to maintain peg because otherwise they will not keep their peg. After withdrawals, you shouldn't need to pay out so many emissions because there's a natural arbitrage. The market forces alone mm. should be enough to keep peg, right? And so they should be able to reduce those emissions. So the actual fundamental thesis is that on the one hand, revenue is as a beneficiary, and on the other hand, expenses are reduced. So you have these two prongs fueling greater fundamentals for the protocols. Now, that's just the directional drivers. To your point, Valuation is also a factor, right? Like, okay, these things get a benefit. Do they get a 300% benefit or a 100% benefit? And that's a relevant question. Um, and I think you're right. Like, if you look at Lido valuation, I think I haven't I haven't refreshed the numbers on my model that recently, and it depends on each price. But like, they might do somewhere like 60 million of revenue or something like that. Um, and you know, you you mentioned that they trade a two billion FTV. It's a bit higher now, but something like that, right? Um, so they're trading like forty times that that bull case revenue number, which you could argue is expensive, right? Like in the traditional stock market, that's an expensive valuation, um, especially for like a market incumbent that isn't going to take market share anytime soon. However, the reality is, pretty much every single thing is fundamentally overvalued in crypto. Like if you yeah. want to look at the metrics from a pure equity standpoint, um, you're not going to find a lot of cheap things. That, that's actually not entirely true. Like there are some cheap things. Like for example, if you look at ETH, ETH pays a 7.5% yield and is deflationary. So in theory, it's trading like 13 times earnings, maybe less actually, 12 times earnings, which is extremely cheap. Um, if you look at something like GMX, they generate an 8% ETH yield, 
which is also 12 times earnings. So like there are some exceptions, but what you find is that generally in crypto, things don't really trade off valuation metrics, right? Because like the holder base is not the type of holder base that's going to hold these things for 10 years and see the earnings outflow. It's, it's crypto is much more of a short-term oriented audience. And as a result, uh, the fundamentals tend to matter less than they do in, in the traditional equity world. And so I think it's important to understand those things, but I also think it's, it's really important to understand that like, just because you have your fundamentals does not mean the market's going to reflect them. Hal, this seems like a pretty convicted bet. And I've heard you talk about how like most at, at this point, like your job really as a trader is to take really concentrated, highly convicted bets. Is there anything that could change your decision here, whether it be on like ETH or liquid staking der derivatives? Oh, um, I just say like on the liquid staking derivatives, like it's a high conviction bet. However, there's naturally like phases of things, right? Like there's phases mm -hmm. of that conviction. And I think that conviction is much stronger to start the year when no one's talking about it than it is now when the first question I get asked on a podcast is about it, right? And everyone on yeah. Twitter is talking about it, right? So, yeah. um, you know, and I'm not mad. Like I, I've tried to make this extremely clear in, in general and I will make it clear again now. Like I'm not married to any position, right? Like my obligation is to my investors and my views change all the time, right? So certainly my views can and will change. Um, and when I think that something has ran its course, I will move on to the next opportunity that I think offers me the best reward. Like I will not hold the same positions for five years. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so like the answer to your question is yes, things can change for me to change my views. And one of those things is just time running its course and my view becoming better appreciated by the rest of the market. Like if that happens, then all right, like the, it's the, the, the gig is up. That doesn't mean that I think these things necessarily have to go down, but they no longer offer me alpha. So I need to find, move on and find something else that does offer me alpha where people aren't aligned with my view and where, where, where there is further greater potential for change. Um, so there's, and that's not to say like that's the case with everything, right? Like there are certain things which are just structural and I believe in and I'll hold for a very long time. But certainly my sizing and my positioning um, uh, definitely impacts sort of or is, is, a, is impacted by my level of conviction. And one of the factors that influences that is really just how differentiated I think my view is from everyone else. Yeah. One view I'd love to get your take on, Mike. I don't know if you want to keep talking about Shanghai, but... I guess it's tied into this. It's just like your your real yields framework and your belief around real yields and some of this conversation that was happening more in the like September October October timeframe. Um, would love to just get your like updated views around your real yields thesis. Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question and it's definitely something that I pay attention to. And the the gist of it is really just there's a lot of yield in crypto, but not all yield is created equal. Um, as we've learned over and over and over and over again. Mm. Um, there's a difference between a token paying out or minting 10% new tokens every year out of thin air and giving that to stakers and saying, oh, here's a 10% staking reward. Like that is not a real yield. That is just, we're diluting you by 10% and giving that token back to you. And so you feel like you're getting 10%, but you're actually getting nothing because for the market cap to stay constant, the price needs to go down 10% and nothing nothing actually is happening here. Um, 
There's a difference between that and we actually have users that want to use the chain, ETH, and they pay us money to use the chain and we distribute that rewards to you and that's your yield. Now, that, that, now ETH yield does not come only from uh, fees. It also comes from emissions. However, if you look at the net effect of it, ETH is deflationary. So like the net emissions are negative and you get a 7.5% yield. So that 7.5% yield is real yield. Like it's actually accruing to the users because they're not being diluted. Um, and that's very different than another blockchain where they just, they just emit the tokens and then you get those as a staking reward, but you get deflated. So that's the concept of real yield. And I do think it's relevant. Um, like I said before, crypto is only loosely tied to fundamentals. So it's not like the only factor that matters, but I do think it's an important consideration. Hmm. Hmm. I am... Um... You know, one thing that you know, on that subject, Hal, I'd love to get your your sort of thought about how other alternative layer ones sort of do in this environment. So, like Aptos, obviously, just ripped like yeah. four hundred. We can talk about Aptos. Aptos is an interesting case study to discuss, and I've talked about this on Twitter. I was shorted to start the year, so it's another painful oh, one that I wish I would have. Sorry, I wish I would have. <laughs> it's yeah. okay. Uh, I covered it all around six to eight dollars, so I have uh, I got out of the way before things got really ugly. But yeah, it was a painful one that, that's taught me some lessons. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd love to, even before getting into Aptos specifically, like, you know, when it, when it comes to it, it seems like Ethereum is, is like far out, right? In terms of winning sort of this like L1 war uh, battle that's been raging for the last two years. You know, in your opinion, has ETH kind of definitively won here? And there's just, there's not going to be much. Act Maybe there'll be like some small L1s that capture a small portion of, of activity. Or do you think like, because one way I could see the, what I could see investors having learned from the last cycle is that some of those L1 trades didn't pan out, but it's like the only investable asset in a lot of, in a lot of ways, you know, like you could have well, learned that lesson. There's right? becoming, there's becoming, there's becoming more investable app layer tokens, which I think is necessary. Like DYDX is one I've yeah. talked about a little bit. Um, I was, I was actually looking at it as a short because there was this massive cliff unlock, but then they moved that. And as I dug into it on the short side, I realized how much potential there was on the long side. And now I actually think it's a really compelling long. Um, and we could talk about that at some point if you want, but just to get into the, into the weeds on the L1, um, the L1 dynamic. There's so many different like um, pieces of this of this question that that I want to unpack, and so I'll try to distill it down and kind of hit on each one. But um, I do think that ETH has clearly demonstrated and sort of won the L1 competition in terms of who's going to be the prominent L1. And it's like, I don't even know if you can even say that though, because ETH long-term is probably not even that used, that, that used of an L1. It's probably more of the L2 chains built on top of ETH and ETH's more of the settlement layer. So it's like, it's not even, it's not even really clear, but I, what I, I guess what I'd, how I'd rephrase that is say the ETH ecosystem has won as sort of the dominant L1 ecosystem, whether that be yeah. ETH, Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, Starkware, CK Sync, like whatever, right? There's so many different like large scale chains that are going to be built on ETH that are all going to like utilize ETH as collateral. A lot of them are going to have their fees paid in ETH. They're all going to settle on ETH and pay ETH fees to do that. Um, 
So like that ecosystem, I think, has clearly won. And the reason that I think it's clearly won is because it's captured such a liquidity moat. Um, like if you want to have an NFT collection that has real liquidity, it needs to be on ETH because that's where all the NFT traders are. And like, yes, Solana has another. Like, and also, I am long Solana too. Solana mm-hmm. was one of the things that we did get right. We bought a lot of Solana under $10 because we thought that it was probably the poster child of all those technical forces of year-end selling um, and was going to mean revert the hardest in the new year. And, and that was one of the parts of the thesis that we did get right. Um, and also, I, I, do, I do believe in Solana. Like, I think that there is a real ecosystem there of developers of more importantly than actually developers, there are users. Like there are actually users that want to use the Solana chain. Um, and there, and also another important thing which kind of gets underappreciated is that Solana has culture. Like there's its own culture to Solana. It's not just like a ripoff chain. Like it's its own thing. It has its own sort of history, yeah. its own culture, its own, honestly, influencers like it has a whole ecosystem built around it um that i think is the only other chain that really rivals eth at all in terms of that culture um and so like i do think solana will exist however you saw this right like with with d gods uh, like they move their nft collection from solana to eth and everyone's like me included is like geez what a bunch of clowns like have they have no loyalty but the floor price pumps it's like so yeah i mean that's because there's all the liquidity is on eth um so i think that other ecosystems will exist um and i think that certain there will be certain winners of that like second tier um category but i think eth has 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 won as the as the premier sort of l1 at least in the foreseeable future like nothing is set in stone but i think for the foreseeable future that'd probably be my view um and then uh, on top of that, though, I, I, I hesitate to even have this discussion because to me, like ETH is more than just an L1 layer, um, or at least to have this discussion and only talk about it as an L1 layer. Like, I actually think that ETH is a better decentralized SLV store of value than Bitcoin. Like, I actually think ETH is competing for that sort of market as well. Um, and it's not just an um, application chain like l1 gas fee token like i actually think eth is probably like if you're trying to just store value in a censorship resistant um way long term i think eth is a better bet than bitcoin and that that's not to say that right now eth is more decentralized than bitcoin or more censorship resistant than bitcoin because it isn't um but it is to say that i think ETH has a better chance in the terminal state of being a sustainable SOV than Bitcoin does. Because I think Bitcoin just faces a lot of sort of fundamental foundational flaws that ETH has actually solved. Can you can you go deeper there, Hal? Can you just say more about that? <laughs> um, sure. Um, and this is something that also I have wrote, spoken about and written about. But basically, yeah. the gist of it is, I do not think long-term, like if we're going to talk decades, I do not think that an SOV can just keep paying for its security by emitting tokens to miners and having them just sell those back into the market. Um, I think long-term what you need, and this was actually written in the Bitcoin white paper, um, and this was the vision of Satoshi, was that that security cost needs to transition from pure emissions to actually fee generation. 
So rather than getting people to mine or, or yeah, to mine the token because they get the token emissions, you need them to mine because they get the fee pool because that fee pool is sustainable and doesn't inflate the total supply. Um, the problem is Bitcoin doesn't generate any fees and mm -hmm. the fees have been down only for a long time. And there's only one chain that actually does, only one L1 chain that, well, there's two. The other is BNB, but BNB is so non-decentralized that it's not really in the, in the conversation for this. Um, outside of BNB, there's only one chain that does generate fees that are sort of large enough to actually cover the security budget, and that's ETH. Um, and on top of that, ETH is not as decentralized today, but has the potential to get there. Like, I envision a world in 10 years where Vitalik is no longer really involved with ETH. The developers have all turned over. The roadmap has mainly been completed and the developers are fulfilling more of like a maintenance role similar to the Bitcoin developers. Like the v Bitcoin has a core developer team too. It's not like it's any different. It's just, it's less important to Bitcoin than ETH's developer um, program is to ETH because ETH is actually still evolving and Bitcoin really isn't. Um, but I think that ETH can get ossified to a point where it looks a lot more like that in the future, but it still generates fees. And at that point, it will be equally decentralized, equally censorship resistant, because I also think they're going to be able to solve the, the issues with censorship on the staking layer, um, and much more sustainable long term. And as a result, going to be just a better decentralized store of value than Bitcoin long term. And so I will concede it's not today, but I think what really matters, especially like if you're somebody who has a lot of money and you're trying to store your value, you're not trying to store it for like five years. You want to store it for like decades. I don't think you can have the conviction that Bitcoin is going to be that in a, in a few decades. I think you can. I think I, one thing that I'd be curious to get your, your thought on is the way I kind of see this is... Um, there's a branding element here that people don't often talk about, which is just like, what is the one word that you associate with Bitcoin? What's the one word that you associate kind of with ETH? Same way like that companies get like one word when you sort of think about their brand. And Bitcoin sort of staked it all on this like digital gold narrative. And in a lot of ways, that was kind of limiting. But what it is, is very simple um, and very easy to understand. And that's what I want that the ETH, because it does so much else, it does so much more than that. It complicates it. It dilutes it. It like people don't think at least most people I would argue out in the world don't think money store value when they think of ETH. So when I think of like what's going to make these things a store of value, like what are their paths that the path for ETH now to grow is to increase its utility in a crypto ecosystem, right? Like that's a soup and that's everything that we're talking about in, in the show here. Bitcoin doesn't have that. It's basically lost that battle, but its road to growth is off-chain buying. It's like it's like macro funds, it's like you know at the highest level potentially countries or central banks buying it. Right. So like what do you do you think that's an appropriate framing and when you lay it out like that, I mean, where do you think the bigger growth driver is for for both of these assets? Yeah, I think I think I think you're correct. Like regardless of what I think the market perception is the market perception, right? It doesn't matter what I think. It just matters what the market thinks. Um, and I would agree because ETH does do a lot of things. People don't actually see it for what it necessarily is. Um, mm. And that that's not necessarily, that doesn't necessarily have to remain the case. Like it just takes one sovereign or one 
like country or whatever to buy ETH as a store of value, and then um, you know people might just start view it differently. But I think at current, there's, that's certainly been the case. Um, and the, th- the so I, I do think that I agree with you on that point, and I and I do agree like certainly that other pool of capital is extremely large and, and, and could conceivably represent a larger growth driver than like just the crypto natives buying more ETH to keep um, using in this crypto economy. But the other point that I think is kind of relevant though, is that there is a very large structural difference, which is that like, because of these inefficiencies that exist with Bitcoin, there is just more Bitcoin emitted to miners every day. And that yeah. just gets sold every day. And because ETH has, actual fees, there's just ETH bought every single day to buy ETH. So it's not just your incremental buyer, it's also the structural forces that I think are arguably more important. Um, and there ETH has clearly won. Um, and so that that is that is definitely a big factor. Hmm. I have a I have a question. Maybe we can get into Aptos here because you know so much of sure. the the discussion about Aptos's run has been like oh apt like they shouldn't be doing this, this is ridiculous. Aptos is, is valued as much as Zated rally. Hated rally, most hated rally. Um, but if I had to maybe take a guess Except at a reason, <laughs> yeah, we like do they love they love the Aptos? All right, I, I don't is, see they're driving. Yeah, Korea it. is Korea has been the main driver of the Aptos rally. Yeah. So so one force that always tends to get underestimated is you. There's like a tremendous um, like dampening of volatility forces. Like assets get bigger just because the amount that's uh, needed to marginally like move the price is like so much larger and larger that like Bitcoin, I think was like the first, if you want to call it like a victim of this. And I think ETH is now in that pool too, where like just the marginal amount of buying or selling to move the price of uh, uh, these assets are higher. And like Aptos is in that low liquidity category, which it can just rip like this. And some, I think it was Ryan Watkins that made a pretty interesting point, which was that until you get a valuation framework that everyone agrees on for these L1s, this is going to continue to happen that like there'll be a big move. Uh, and then people value L1s like relative to one another. So they'll be like, oh, like ETH is worth like $200 billion. Here's this like upstart. Maybe it'll be worth 5% of that, which is like an arbitrary number. And because it's low liquidity, in many cases, low float, it just rips. So like, is that kind of the dynamic? A, is that the dynamic that you see with Aptos? And do you see that general dynamic like kind of continuing into the future with? Well, there's a, with there's a few dynamics. There's a few dynamics with Aptos. It's an interesting one. Mm. Um, First of all, I think a lot of people were shorted to start the year, as indicated by the fact that I was shorted to start the year. Um, like, I think that was a consensus thing because um, I think part of this get the like a part of this at the very heart um, is about FDV versus market cap, and I think ultimately, like FDV is the relevant metric because that's what represents the total tokens. However, in any shorter period of time, FDV truly is a meme. Like it actually doesn't matter because it's not liquid. It's not like the the, the portion of liquid participants, they don't they, they're not they're not part of that. Like if Aptos market cap is 200 million but its FDV is 3 billion and Solana or let's say Matic market cap is 3 billion and FDV is 3 billion, they're the same valuation. However, there's only $300 million of people long Aptos and there's $3 billion of people long Matic. So if 10% of the people move from Matic to Aptos, Aptos doubles and Matic goes down 10%. Like it does, it, like the market cap 
in terms of the actual money flows is what matters. Now, long term, if you want to put a pair trade on for three years, you could do FDV because ultimately those tokens will become um, liquid again and, and, then, and then they will reflect that. But it's just way out in the future, especially for something like Aptos, where the investor unlocks are not actually until um, until September. Like then FDV truly is a meme. And this is one of the things that we got wrong is that we were looking at it on FDV, but FDV is not relevant so far away from the unlocks. Um, so that was like one factor. I think you had a lot of people short and then the market just systematically targeted everything people were short, rationally so, because they knew these people are gonna have to cover. Um, and and they, they all did, and me included. Thankfully I covered earlier, but yes, everyone covered. Um, and so the market kind of targeted those shorts and Aptos was a poster child of it. And so that was like what got it going. And then, as I've said many times in, uh, before, in crypto, well, in, in every market, this is the case, but it's definitely the case in crypto. Price leads narrative and not the other way around. And so yes. the fact so that, and the fact that people were short Aptos that's all you needed for it to go up, right? It wasn't because Aptos is a great chain. It just like the market knew people were short and they could squeeze them. And so they did. Um, and then the people covered and the price ripped because it was low float and everyone had to exit a small door. And then people say, oh, well, hold on a second. Maybe this Aptos chain is the next big thing. <laughs> and then like, I think I don't, I don't want to like generalize, but I have heard that in Korea, a lot of the things that the investors focus on is gaming and L1s and Aptos has marketed itself as a new gaming L1. And so I think like naturally um, there was a fit there. And so for whatever reason, there's been a ton of retail buying in Korea of Aptos and those guys just like, they are, they're very good at this. Then um, they, we've seen this in the past where like these tokens just go on crazy runs when this happens and there's, there's Korean retail buying. Um, and so I think the fit with the profile of the chain with the fact that it was shorted with the fact that the price had already gone up with the fact that the unlocks were so far away with the fact with the year end inflection all created this confluence, which created the Aptos rally. So this is something I didn't actually even realize is the connection with South Korea, but I'm, I have BlockWorks' website pulled up here, and we just published an article that says, um, Aptos sur surge triggers flashbacks of Ripple's 2017 bull run. Shorting positions in the South Korean crypto market might hold some answers to the token spike. And I pulled it up, and the uh, in South Korea, they just kicked off the Jangle Blockchain Foundation Week, which well, this is... Well, is, this is the other thing that I was going to tell you, which is that there's actually the start of a series of hackathons. This is actually the reason that we covered... And, and Aptos is, because, is really heavily yeah. promoted there, I guess, right? This is the reason that we covered, thankfully. We figured this out. Um, was that there is the start of a whole series of Aptos hackathons. The first one is in Seoul on February 2nd. And <laughs> it's going to be very promoted. There's going to be a lot of gaming announcements, etc. And so as soon as I realized there was this date on the calendar that people were eventually going to figure out and get behind, I, I can't, we, we cannot be short this until after that <laughs> date at the absolute earliest. Um, huh. And yeah, so all of those things, all of those things. Um, but how, let me, um, okay. So, all right. So really interesting lessons learned from Aptos. How does this then apply to how you, um, tackle like the L2 trade? 
I mean, I don't know that it's that necessarily related to the L2 trade, but it certainly influences like how I think about sort of managing the fund just in general. Like I'm, I'm constantly learning. Like, honestly, I think back, you know, we only launched 13 months ago and mm. I was, I had no experience managing a crypto fund that it was, <laughs> it was pretty funny timing actually. What, what did you <laughs> we do launched... before the tell? What, what were you pre-crypto? I did, I did five years at Morgan Stanley in a variety of roles. And then I did one year at Maverick as a, as a hedge fund analyst. I had some money management experience at Morgan Stanley because I ran a derivatives book there for three years. Um, but like we launched at the pico, pico, pico top of the market, like literally couldn't have timed it any better. Like our initial mark on ETH was 46.50 on these first of, of 2021. And then ETH proceeded to go down 80% in a directly straight line over six months. Uh, and our whole thesis was the merge, right? So we obviously had a decent ETH allocation. Um, so like, as I think back to that, there's so many like lessons learned along the way. And then, but wait, but I never experienced a bottom. I never experienced like what a bottom looks like, how the market like trades on a bottom. Cause I'd only experienced not only from the top. And then this was the first sort of this, the year end. Like it, that's why I said, like, I'm a little annoyed at myself. I didn't capitalize on it better, but like, I was bullish. And so I was like buying in December and I took the firm's net position up and I bought a lot of alts, but there was other things that I didn't do, which I should have done. Like in hindsight, it was obvious that the market was going to target the low float tokens that everyone was short, but I hadn't had the experience to realize that. Right. Mm. And so like, that's the lesson learned from Aptos is like when you, and I can talk about this because the next bottom is not going to be for many years. And anyone that watches this is going to have forgotten about it by the time we get there. And so like, I'm not giving up any alpha by saying it now, <laughs> but um, when you get to bottoms like that and you have this, like this really heavy sell pressure and you can identify some reason why you think there's going to be an inflection, like you actually don't want to buy the, good tokens because those are all tokens that have good tokenomics and have unlocked and whatever they don't they're not they're not they're they're hard to move like we got somewhat fortunate in that we bought solana and it pumped just because it, it pumped a lot just because it had gone down so much but like that wasn't actually the right profile of a token to buy what you wanted to buy was these things that had extremely low float and other people were short um but i i had i i just like didn't have that framework so that's really the lesson that i learned um, mm. Does that apply to like the, to the, re the reason that I say it doesn't necessarily apply to the L2 trade is like this is different than the L2 trade like the L2 yeah. trade like I don't even know what the L2 trade is frankly but like to the extent it's like buying L2s because they're going to launch like that's just a very different thing than than what happened with Aptos. It's hmm. a good lesson. I mean, let me then rephrase the question. Like, you believe in the ETH ecosystem? A lot of things will settle to probably L2s instead of L1 instead of instead of ETH. Like, how do you think about like? Arbitrum versus optimism and like just the L2 landscape. And, well, and, and I, how do you yeah. Think about, yeah. I also do just want to say like, this is a great project and I'm sure everyone's like, I'm support, like I love Ben Jones and what they're doing at optimism, but optimism is like the definition of that as well. It's got like $500 million circulating supply off a of 11 billion fully diluted value. And OP was a token that ripped as well. So I feel like that does fit that. Yeah. Right. For the Bang. same reasons. Yeah. For yeah. The same reasons. I was not short optimism because I was bullish on the ETH eco, but it was like mm. a short target for a lot of people. Right. Um, 
like people were shorted. It was low float. What happened? Like same thing, like optimism, GMT, DYDX, Aptos, um, Stargate. It doesn't matter. Any token that was heavily shorted in low float, they all ripped. Like it didn't, it didn't matter what was going on. Like that just shows you like, this isn't about fundamentals. This is about. But Hal, actually let me, uh, I dig in for a second there. Like when you say people are targeting the places that have shorts, that seems like a very like hedge fund, like a fund mentality. But then it's also like, okay, well, a lot of this rally and something like Aptos is very retail South Korean driven. So like when you- It's not just funds. It's not just funds. Retail's doing it too. Like really? you go on crypto Twitter, you go on crypto Twitter and people are talking about this. Like GCR mm-hmm. tweeted this and it was, it was correct, right? Like everybody yeah. is aware of this dynamic and like, it's like, okay, who targeted the short squeeze in GameStop? Retail. Yeah. Hmm. Same thing. That's hmm. really funny. Yeah. Um, oh, Shit, I had a question for you and I totally blanked on it. But let's talk, let's talk about L2s though, because that's like the next big, I've got well, like sort of two more dynamics I want to cover with you. But like, what are, what are your thoughts on sort of, um, look, it's, I mean, we're recording this on January 27th. We're sort of like the the heart of, of a bear, right? And maybe maybe price action is going to improve from here, which is I think Jason and my general framework, but like it's going to probably be a, so a bear market. Sorry. So you're telling me, so you're telling me it's time to sell? I, no, no. Well, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. I said it was time to buy. So yeah, it's time to sell. Um, I'm just but, kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I'm an extremely reliable contraindicator. But I, but there's still like a bear market left. And like when you kind of look out into the horizon about things that people are excited about, like L2s, definitely. Like you just kind of mentioned like L2s is something to be. What, what, are your, what is your sort of general framework for when you think about the major layer twos today and like how important of a sector is that going to be? I think it's going to be extremely relevant. Um, I think it's going to be relevant for ETH, and I think it's going to be relevant for the L2s. I think I'm a little like skeptical long-term of the L2 tokens because there's going to be so many of them competing for the same mind share, whereas like, there's only ever going to be one ETH. Um, so I, I like if you're asking me like my five year view, do I think optimism outperforms ETH? Like definitely not. Um, I think ETH outperforms all of them over any long period of time. Doesn't mean that there won't be trades to be had. Um, I don't have very strong views about sort of like which L1, which L2 is going to win for which reason and like which ones you should be buying. I, I'd say my my stronger view is just that I think when you have Arbitrum launched, Optimism launched, Matic launched, ZK Sync launched, Starkware launched, all promoting the adoption of their chain on ETH, all trying to onboard new people, paying people for partnerships on their chain. That is going to be a powerful dynamic in terms of bringing users to the Ethereum ecosystem. And if Arbitrum onboards a user that wasn't in crypto, very likely that that user is going to buy RB and also buy ETH. Um, and so you're basically getting these free marketing budgets from all the chains built on ETH. And I think that's going to be a powerful dynamic for ETH itself. I would agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I, ha- I have one sort of thought and idea to, to run by you here because, you know, I think it's worth talking about and just like event for this for the end state of crypto right like 
where does the user value capture sort of occur? Like right now, people say like people are users of Ethereum today. I think I think most people might agree that like 10 years from now, people aren't going to be users of, of Ethereum, right? Like people are ultimately going to use apps. You don't think so? I think there will still be users. I think it will be whales mainly, but there will still whales. be users. Okay. Um, well, I, I guess like the, the point I was trying is like most people will like come to like I'll, I'll tell you that I will concede what I think the point you're trying to make is like, it won't be super widespread mainstream adoption. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's like, ultimately, ETH, if you think about ETH's business model as selling block space, then they'll do that to other blockchains and, and, and like yeah. whales that want to transact. Right. Um, so I think your question is like, what is the use that the mainstream adoption is going to come to crypto for? I'm, I guess I'm asking you to, this is a really tough question, but like, let's say there's a value chain of like, there's an app that a lot of people use just for, it probably won't, it might be this, but like, let's say it's a decentralized exchange that maybe like is a roll app, right? Kind of like a layer three that would set, that would go down to a layer two that ultimately then gets routed to ETH. Where does the value capture accrue, right? Like wit, like, and mm, across that chain, do you, do you see what I'm saying? Yes. So you're saying there's a decentralized exchange built on optimism. They yes. charge a user $10 to do a trade in a commission. Right. How much of that value accrues to decentralized exchange? How much of that value accrues to optimism? How much of that value accrues to ETH? That's um, exactly what I'm asking, yeah. So, I think the majority, there's two buckets. There's like, the trading revenue so like if you pay ten dollars in commission like the, the, the that's like your trading revenue the majority of that is going to recruit to the app layer mm. um like when dydx was built actually this is a perfect example right because dydx was built on starkware starkware yeah yeah mm -hmm. right so that was the example so the majority of the value when a user paid went to dydx and then some minority of that went to Starkware for facilitating. And then what went to Starkware, Starkware had to pay some portion of that to ETH for settlement. And I think, so I actually don't know the exact numbers, but I have seen them in the past. And I, if I recall correctly, of that second bucket, more value accrues to ETH than the L2, but it's like in the same order of magnitude, we call it like 60, 40. And then the majority of value, though, accrues to the app layer. However, like there's only one ETH, and then there's ten L2s, and then there's a hundred apps on all the L2s. Mm. So, like, yes, each one of those a hundred is going to generate the majority of the value, but they're all going to contribute to the L2, and then all the L2s are going to contribute to ETH. So, ETH is only going to get a small portion of each individual transaction but they will see a cut of every transaction the the reason i was sort of asking as a for another for another podcast was doing research on um aggregation theory if you've heard of that by, by ben thompson sure. uh, and what one of there was a there was an idea in there called uh, the smiling curve and the smiling curve is a dynamic used to describe the pc industry in the early days and it's called a smile because like if you divide up like R&D over here at the beginning of the production of PCs, then there's fabrication in the middle, then there's like brand and consumer, like the interaction with the actual customer. 
the way value would accrue was a smile. Whereas there was actually a lot of value in owning the relationship with right. the customer. There was a lot of value in the uh, R&D and patents and everything at the beginning. And nothing the in the middle. Nothing in the middle. They just got smoked and it was highly commoditized. And like, mm -hmm. honestly, when we describe like these dynamics, I could sort of see that yeah. playing out. You know what I mean? And Yeah, that's, so that's an interesting point. I do think the app layer is going to generate a lot of the value. And I do think ETH is going to generate a lot of it. That's kind of like the two ends of the smile. And the L2s are more like questionable. Um, but... I actually think, this, and this is an important point um, that I think we should discuss, which is that like, I actually don't know how much it matters for ETH specifically, how much value they capture. Because like I said, like, I actually think of ETH as competing for the decentralized SLV market cap too, which is arguably like bigger than this sum of future cash flows from staking market cap. And I also think that ETH has a tremendous amount of value just from being adopted and used as collateral for a variety of things, right? Like if you own ETH to buy NFTs that are denominated in ETH, which everybody does, that provides value to ETH that has nothing to do with how much fees ETH generates. Mm. And if you buy ETH because ETH is a decentralized SOV a la Bitcoin, that value also has nothing to do with how much hmm. money ETH generates. Um, so I think it, it, I, I'm hesitant to focus too entirely on it because it's not really the most important point. It's a part of the value proposition, but it's not the only one. And I mean, this can sound contradictory to the fact that I say that alt L1s don't have a lot of value because they don't generate fees. The difference is alt L1s also don't have a native ecosystem that requires the L1 token. And they also don't have decentralization that allows people to buy them as decentralized SOVs. So in their case, it is the only actual source of value and they happen to generate none of it. But for ETH, it has the other sources of value, so it is actually relevant. So like, those two aren't actually necessarily contradictory. Um, but yeah, I just I just want to make that point. Like, like ultimately, I don't think ETH is going to stay deflationary. Like I think L1 fees will compress and ETH price will go up and you know it'll probably reach some steady state of like very minor inflation like, you know, less than 1%. Um, but as long as it's adopted for those other utilities, as long as it keeps being used and the ecosystem keeps growing and the economy keeps growing, I still think that the, the price can perform very well. And another reason for that is that this is really a key point, is that like ETH emissions are very different than Bitcoin emissions because they go, because the, one is proof of stake and one is proof of work, right? If you're a staker, you just like buy a liquid staking derivative. You have no cost. Like when I get paid, like I have, I, I manage whatever I manage for the fund. And then I also have my own personal crypto investments that I just like don't, I don't ever trade my PA because I don't want to conflict with the fund. But like I own some crypto assets for like 10 years, 20 years, 30 years that I'm just like never touching. And ETH is the, is the main one that I own. And like I obviously own a, a version of staked ETH. But like I'm never like, oh crap, I need to sell my staking rewards because I paid expenses to get them. Like, so the emissions that people get from staking rewards don't actually end up hitting the open market for the most part. But with Bitcoin, the emissions that miners get, they all end up hitting the open market because they all have tons of expenses that they need to cover. And so they all need to sell them. And so even if ETH is slightly inflationary, that doesn't mean it has net supply. It actually still has net demand as long as the fee pool is significant because that issuance is not actually being sold. 
I, I think that that's a super compelling argument, by the way. Yeah. I think that was, I think you, uh, that you sort of made me change my mind on that, that idea. It's a very uh, super important dynamic. Hmm. Well, happy to help. <laughs> Hal, uh, I'm going to, I want to maybe end it with this question, which is, uh, cause I know, I know we got to jump in a second here. Things we're talking about today is like long ETH, excited about liquid staking derivatives, talking about L2s. Is there anything that's maybe less like and those those i would say those three things are like very in the narrative like very talked about today like is there anything else that you're really excited about that are maybe more on the fringes i think the most contrarian take i have recently is about dydx um like i think dydx is another like hated token because it's been like a terrible valueless governance token and most people hate it and it has this low float dynamic however I mean, we can talk about this one quickly because I think people will find it interesting. But I have long thought that if you could get a good app layer token that actually has product market fit, actually generates revenue, and actually returns that revenue to users in an efficient fashion, it would be super powerful. And I think kind of an exemplification of this is GMX. Like GMX has a lot of flaws, but it fits those buckets. And because it does, it's been an extremely successful token. Um, and I think DYDX has the potential to be that like supercharged. Hmm. Because DYDX is by far the market leader, has by far the best UX, and is now seemingly very committed to solving the other issues that have held them back. So uh, the fact that they delayed the token unlock a year tells you a lot like the team is willing to work with investors and can see the vision and they don't want to sell here like they know what's being built and they know that the token is going to be worth a lot more in the future once they complete the vision and so i think that's a really strong re reaffirmation and then like i think v3 is probably going to come in the third quarter once v3 comes it's going to fit the description of what i just outlined assuming they execute um for like the first time in this in this entire kind of industry whereas like they generated $350 million of revenue. Even at current value, it's a $2 billion FDV. Like the actual market cap is like sub 350 million, but the FDV itself is 2 billion. So like they're gonna be trading seven times real revenue. Like that's kind of unheard of in this industry. Um, and all that revenue is gonna accrue back to the token holders. So the vision is that when they create their, their the new chain on Cosmos, you're going to be able to get a DYDX token, which by the way, then will be an L1 and we'll have some L1 premium re-rating. Second of all, all the rewards are going to flow back to validators. So you're actually going to receive the yield. And that's also another way to, to solve the regulatory issue. You're not turning on a fee switch. You're just returning revenue to the stakers. That's the, you kind of, that's the, the ability to bypass that regulation via creating an L1. Um, and then on top of that, like, Nobody owns it because everyone was scared away by the fact that there was this massive unlock. So all these funds that are like desperately searching for an application layer token that they can own that actually has valuation support, that actually has utility, that actually has product market fit. Well, you're potentially going to see one exist for the first time in eight months and no one owns it. And it's super low float and it's super liquid and like everyone hates it. So I think like I don't know whether this is going to work or not. As a fund, we just have a position now that we've that we've accumulated. That's like, I'm just putting this away and I'm forgetting about it. 
and I'll come back in eight months and see what's happened with this launch. But there's like massive potential here, in my opinion. Hmm. Hmm. I'd say that's a pretty contrarian take. I don't think a lot of people have kind of articulated that. Yeah. Yeah. I guess one more thing just to, um, sorry, I know Jason said it was going to be the last question, but just to like, you know, you talked about sort of one one of the dynamics like pumping crypto right now is the the change in rate regimes, right? Like everyone sees inflation rolling over, and yeah, we can talk like, about macro for a minute if you want. Could we could we just close it on that? Like, because I the it seems like it seems like if I had to outline a macro thesis, it would be that we we're going to get stop start inflation, right? Like this, is a, this is the classic thing that happens in inflationary periods. It's like there's a cyclical rollover in inflation. It's like largely like gas prices and and stuff like that, and then and then we'll ease rates, you know, uh, before we should necessarily. And then they, it tends to rise up. And also like, we haven't even seen a lot of the, the impacts that you would have thought that you would see some, from such intense monetary contraction, like housing hasn't gone down, the labor market hasn't gone down or like, hasn't, uh, you know, been disrupted. So like, do you see, and, and earnings haven't dropped at all. Or earnings have been like pretty steady state. So like, what, what do you, do you see any like macro overhang here that concerns you or no? So the issue with this question is that we could spend another hour and a half discussing. <laughs> I, I know, dude. I'm sorry. I know. <laughs> I know. Can of worms right at the end. <laughs> but I've got 10 minutes. Um, so there's like a lot of there's a lot of different things to break down, and I don't want to like ramble too much on macro and like bore people at the end of this. But I'll give you my I'll try to give you my condensed take. Um, <sighs> I think at the crux of this is inflation and trying to understand what is inflation, what drove inflation, and then trying to use those inputs to forecast future inflation. So the first part of the question um, is really what actually is inflation. So I think a lot of times people confuse inflation with prices. Those are not the same thing. Like inflation is not an absolute price gauge. Inflation is the rate of change of the price gauge. So for inflation to moderate, you do not need prices to moderate. Prices are not going to moderate. And people, I think, confuse that with thinking that inflation is not going to moderate. Like, I think a lot of people think prices are never coming back down. And so inflation is going to be like structures. No, that we don't need prices to come down. We just need them to stop going up. and then inflation goes to zero. And if you get even prices to tick down off the very peak of top, that's actually deflation. Um, like if price goes up 20% and then drops 1%, you have deflation. And so I think that's an important first point. Then the second point is what's actually driven this inflation? And I think there's been really two main forces. One, was COVID. Like for you know 30 years, we had structurally declining inflation. And in my opinion, that was driven by a lot of structural forces, most importantly, population dynamics, which by the way, ain't changing. Um, and then all of a sudden, you had this massive surge in inflation. And I think clearly that indicates an acute driver, not some change in structural dynamics. And what was the acute driver? COVID. So COVID, created inflation for a variety of reasons. First of all, it crimped, so inflation is really just like so many things in markets, 
it's just a product of supply and demand. It's just are there more buyers of the asset or more sellers of the asset? And then that determines whether price goes up or down. Um, and so when you think about it in that lens, COVID did two things. It crimped demand. It made it harder for factories to get together and produce stuff. It created supply bottlenecks, which, ob which all had an impact of reducing supply. And then it also boosted demand. And it boosted demand in a variety of ways. One, it forced people to be stuck at home, so they bought all kinds of different things that they wouldn't normally buy, including new homes um, and like computer electronics and home furniture and whatever, dogs. Like people just bought all kinds of things. And then another reason that they did that was because there was this initial perception that COVID was going to create a very hard economic period because it was causing unemployment and all this disruption, et cetera, which by the way, didn't actually turn out to be the case because the society very quickly learned to adapt and deal with COVID, but this was the view. And because of this view, it gave central banks a green light to implement extreme easy monetary policy. And this had an effect of massively supercharging demand. So they one handed people tons and tons of free money, which was like crazy. But then they also took interest rates to zero. And then on top of that, started printing more money. So like they did everything you could possibly do to supercharge demand at a time when demand was already being supercharged by the structural shift of COVID. And then this all happened at the same time that supply was crimped. So you created like the perfect storm to see prices astronomically rise for everything. And that's what happened. Prices went bananas on everything. You can look at the price of any good and it just was like on a trend and then went like straight up into the right extremely quickly. Um, and that's kind of where we are, right? And that creates like a very dislocated price. Like that reaches, the, that, that takes prices to a very unnatural level because of that supply demand dynamic. But then, What's happened since? So COVID is now basically over, right? I go around, I don't even see anyone wearing a mask. Everyone in factories is back to 100%. Like actually now, you actually, this is some one of the things, like things tend to overshoot, right? You create all this artificial demand and then all these places start building the capacity to handle it. And then the demand disappears, but they still have all the capacity, right? So now everything is actually oversupplied, like well oversupplied. It's actually timely that you ask about this because I used to be a semiconductor analyst Intel had their earnings. They're one of the largest semiconductor com companies in the world. Perfect, perfect, perfect litmus test for sort of supply-demand bottlenecks. They said they are seeing, and this is a quote, the largest inventory correction in history. Mm. Um, so you now have massive oversupply. And so that's on your supply end of the equation. And then what happened on the demand end of the equation? Rates are the highest they've been in a decade. Federal policy is the tightest it's been in a decade. They're draining money from the system. And everybody just spent all their savings on buying all this new shit they don't actually need and now have no more appetite to buy anything. Hmm. So your demand has like fallen off a cliff and supply has gone through the roof. And this has happened at the same time that prices have been dislocated to a level that's like, completely unnatural to the upside. So for me, and I've had this view for a very long time before it was like 
consensus to think this. It's becoming more consensus now as it plays out. But I've been talking about this for the better part of seven months. It's pretty obvious to me that that's going to lead to deflation. Like prices are actually going to come down. It's not that they're just going to go up more slowly. They're going to come down. And we've actually already started to see this. So I tweet this all the time. Like used car prices are a perfect example. They were on a trend, hadn't moved in 10 years. All of a sudden, magically, they go up 30%. What do you think is going to happen when the dynamics that drove that 30% increase reverse? They're going to come down. And what's happening? They're coming down. Home prices, coming down. Computer electronics products, coming down. Food prices, coming down. Commodity prices, coming down. Freight rates, coming down. Every price, asset prices, coming down. They're all going to come down. And so now that, like, if you understand what inflation is, it's the rate of change of the price, not the absolute level of the price. The price is not going to come back down to where it was, but it is going to stop going up. And that is going to create deflation. And more than that, there's going to be some like adjustment period and it'll settle out, but there's simply no reason that any of the structural dynamics have changed. As a matter of fact, population demographics have actually probably accelerated and we just built out all this excess capacity that we don't actually need. So it's very hard for me to see any justification for why we would have structurally higher inflation after this episode. I think you have a blip up, a blip down, and then right back to the trend that you had before. There's simply, I can't think of any reason why there would, it would happen any other different way. And so in that context, I actually don't think it's gonna be this big battle to get inflation down. Like I think like pretty soon people, you're gonna be hearing people worried more about deflation than inflation. And that's going to allow central banks to stop being as tight and that's just gonna lead to resumption of the previous dynamics that we had. That has been my base case for a very long time, continues to be my base case today. I could be wrong, but that's what I think. Um, and that's been a very contrarian view. And a lot of people tell me I'm stupid and naive because I don't understand how business cycles work and that's never how it works, but that's how I think it's gonna happen. And also I think people don't give central banks enough credit I actually think Jerome Powell has done a pretty good job. Okay, yes, he made mistakes, um, but he has a freaking hard job and a very thankless one at that. And I think they do a better job than they get credit for, and they are more competent than people give them credit for. And I actually think they will be able to handle this. Like people say, how are you sure that inflation is going to come down? It's because like, the Fed's not going to let it keep going up. Like they have the tools to bring it down, and they're going to bring it down. Um, and then, like, who's going to manage the soft landing? The same competent people that are going to bring inflation down now. And I actually mm -hmm. think so. I actually think that Jerome and the whole Fed team um, is done a better job than people want to give them credit for. Will continue to do a better job than people give them credit for, and will actually accomplish this. And it's not going to be a straight line. That doesn't mean risk assets are going to go straight up into the right forever. But in 12 months' time, I think we're going to be in a lot more of a settled, stable monetary regime than we are right now i agree oh, yeah i think that's i it's honestly a super fair take and and i agree with that point that uh the fed deserves more credit than people give i mean they navigated this like could have gone a lot worse you know when the whole world shut down um i, I appreciate you indulging indulging my question <laughs> there at the end how uh no how worries it took exactly 10 minutes yeah this is, this is great man thank you for coming on this is awesome um and appreciate you coming on no worries. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Take care.